Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 5. <coughs> Galatians chapter 5. So Tim and Mark are working through the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. I'm working through the book of Galatians in the New Testament. And this morning we're in chapter 5. In particular, verses 13 through 15. So just these three verses. There's an outline on the back of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you, to see where we're headed. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. If you're using one of our hardback Bibles, it's there in the pew in front of you. It's page 916. It'll be helpful if you've got the word open so you can follow along as, as we move along. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. Um, I was talking with some folks this morning about managing a Starbucks. So towards the end, of, I worked at Starbucks all through graduate school and then toward the end of graduate school, managed that Starbucks, did that for several years. And, uh, and at least when we worked for Starbucks, I don't think it's like this anymore, but we were allowed to make as many drinks for ourselves as we wanted for free, uh, which we took advantage of. We had a whole lot of uh, drinks. I actually remember leaving Starbucks to go to Maine and to pastor this church and realizing this is gonna be difficult to leave this situation where I get all this stuff for free and I'm not gonna get all this stuff anymore because it's expensive and, and I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to pay for it. But at that time, that's what we did. We used that freedom we had to serve ourselves, to indulge ourselves. Had all sorts, of, uh, all sorts of drinks there at the Starbucks, but that's what humans typically do, right? We use our freedom to serve ourselves. At least that's the way the world usually works. So usually the CEO of the company isn't cleaning the toilets. Usually out in the world, he's, he's become the CEO and so he doesn't have to do those, those menial tasks anymore. Normally the wife of the police officer isn't getting a speeding ticket. We uh, funny at Starbucks, we gave police officers their drinks for free to keep police officers coming in. We were in a district in Louisville that kind of could be shady, especially after hours. And so we gave cops their drinks for free. And uh, and that's one theme that I saw is, is that a police officer's wife normally didn't get a, a speeding ticket. Normally, the, the coach's son is going to make the team. It's normally how it works. Humans usually use freedom for self gain. But but is that the way it's supposed to work inside of Jesus's kingdom? How does he tell us to use our freedom for ourselves or for some other purpose? Well, this is the question Paul answers for us in our passage this morning. So hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 5, 13 through 15. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So the main idea here is that as Christians, we're supposed to use the freedom we're given in the gospel, not to indulge ourselves. No, we're supposed to use the freedom we're given in the gospel to serve one another. That's the main idea of this passage. And Paul builds the case for us in, in five steps. And this is, this is the way we'll look at the passage this morning. So he, he teaches us first that the gospel frees us from justification by works. It's the first thing we're gonna look at. Second, our sinful nature is always looking for opportunities to sin. It's the second thing we'll see in this passage. And, and then that's why those two things, that's why third, we need to be encouraged to use our freedom to serve one another. It's the third thing he's going to tell us, the main point of this passage. And then the last two points are the reasons Paul gives to serve one another. 
So the fourth point, love for one another is what God wants for us. And then finally, love for one another will preserve our church. Love for one another will help to preserve Cornerstone Baptist Church. So, so Paul, he's, he's concluding his argument from the first five chapters of Galatians. This is really kind of a hinge verse. He's made his case about how the false teachers are wrong. They're teaching a false gospel of justification by works, trying to make yourself right in God's eyes in part through your own good works and obedience. He's saying that's not the real gospel. He's made his case for the real gospel, which is, no, you're made right in God's eyes through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any works. Well, he's summing up his main point for us here in verse 13. Look there. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. So the, the gospel calls us to freedom, Paul says. And this idea of freedom versus slavery, it's a theme that has shown up time and time again in the book of Galatians. So Paul talks about it in chapter 1, verse 4. He talks about it in chapter 2, verse 4, using this imagery. He talks about it in chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. And then all of chapter 4, if you remember that, with the example of uh, the freeborn Isaac and the slave-born Ishmael. All the way up to chapter 5, verse 1. Look back there, chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And again, this is the theme our passage starts with. First verse in our passage. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Okay, so, so what kind of freedom is Paul talking about? He keeps coming back to this theme. What's the freedom Paul is talking about in this letter to the Galatians? Well, it's the freedom from self-justification before God. It's the freedom from self-justification before God. And this is our first point this morning. The gospel frees us from justification by works. The gospel frees us from justification by works. So again, remember the background of this letter. There have been false teachers that were telling these young Christians, hey, the way that you can really become a Christian, the way that you can have your sins forgiven, the way you can become God's child, the way you can be given an innocent verdict, an innocent righteous standing in God's eyes, it's not faith alone in Christ. No, it's faith in Christ plus some good works. You need to have some obedience if you want to be made right in God's eyes. They were saying justification came by works. In particular, having males in your household get circumcised. That's kind of the main obedience that they were hitting on, but, but there were others. Flip back over to chapter 2 of Galatians. We were there probably, a, I don't know, a few months ago. <clears throat> in chapter 2, Paul, he's recounting the story of Years before when he had traveled to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, those were those men that Jesus had selected to be his unique messengers, the unique leaders of, of the first Christian church. Paul goes to meet with them, and, and he takes this young Greek Christian named Titus. Look at what Paul says about that situation, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Okay, so that's where we see what kind of freedom he's talking about here. He, he ties 
his view of justification apart from works, justification by faith alone in Christ, Paul says that's freedom. And he contrasts that with the view of the false teachers who say circumcision or, or other good works are necessary for justification. He calls that slavery. Okay, so, so why is that? Why is justification by works considered to be slavery? Well, think about it this way. I think this is a big part of it. If you're somebody's slave, if you're somebody's servant, then in a way you're always on duty, right? Your time is not your own. You're, you're on their time. If they need something, your job is to do that thing that they need. You're always working when you're a servant, when you're a slave. Well, for the person who thinks that relationship with God is built at all on their own good works and efforts, that person is going to be always working to try to achieve that relationship. And, and more than that, that, that just standing in God's eyes, that innocent standing, it will never actually be achieved. This is exactly what Paul teaches us in chapter 5, verse 3. Look back there. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So what he's saying is, we've talked about this before, if somebody believes even one good work, even one of your obediences is part of what makes you right in God's eyes. Well, if that's the way you think about it, then you're going to have to be responsible for your entire right standing in God's eyes. If you want to make part of the law, part of what makes you right in God's eyes, you've got to keep the whole law. Paul's come back to that time and time again in the book of Galatians. The way we've talked about it before, the illustration we've used is that God doesn't split the check. So imagine you're at a restaurant. So the thing that's come to the table is your justification, your innocent standing in God's eyes. You're becoming God's child. And you say to God, okay, how about this? God, you pay for part of this. Maybe even you say, God, you pay for most of this through Christ and what he did for me on the cross. Just let me pay for a little bit of it with this particular good work or these particular good works. Well, at that point, that's when God says, no, either I pay for the whole check or you pay for the whole check. Those are the only options when it comes to the gospel. If you're going to try to justify yourself, you have to have a life of perfect, absolute perfection. So think about it this way. Let's go to the, the context of human relationships, something that we, we do from day to day. How would it make you feel if your boss came to you tomorrow and said, just so you know, the next time you make any mistake, you're going to lose your job. So a spelling error, a rounding error, let's say you get to work a minute late, you're on lunch a minute too long, the next time that, next time that happens, the next time you make a mistake, you're going to lose your job. Or if you're a member here and the church said, hey, just so you know, the next time you sin, we're going to revoke your membership. That's it. No more chances. The next time you sin, you're out. Or if you're a kid living at home, and if your mom said, hey, next time your room isn't perfectly clean, next time there's a sock out of place, we're putting you up for adoption. So think, of it, think about those sorts of situations. Imagine the pressure that you would feel if that was your situation. You, you would have to be on, you'd have to be perfect all the time. That would be bondage, wouldn't it? That would be slavery. 
flip back, look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10. And there he says, For all who rely on works of the law, for your justification in God's eyes, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So to think that your justification is on your shoulders and all the time you're having to be perfect or you're going to lose that relationship with the Lord, that's like being under a curse, Paul says. It's a burden. It's like slavery. It's just like a ticking clock counting down until you'll have to stand before the Lord and, and be rightfully punished for inevitably your sin, because none of us is perfect. If self-justification isn't slavery, I don't know what is. There's nothing that, that would be more bondage-giving than that. But see, Jesus came for the express purpose of freeing us from that slavery. Chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, for the purpose of freedom, Christ has set us free. And he did that by dying on the cross in our place to pay for our sins. He lived a perfect life, and then he sacrificed that perfect life to pay for your sins and to pay for my sins. And what that means is for the Christian, the pressure is off. So for those of us who are, are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, we have been justified. The verdict has already been announced. You're probably familiar with the idea of double jeopardy. So in our legal system, you, you can't be convicted of a crime. There can't be a, a verdict handed down that then later you get tried for the same thing. That's how it works here. If you're trusting in Christ, the moment you first trusted in Jesus alone to pay for your sins, the future verdict on the day of the Lord has been brought into the present. It was announced, and God isn't changing the verdict ever because it's not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus's performance which is perfect. God will never revoke that verdict. So the pressure is off. That's what Paul's getting at in the first sentence of our passage. For you were called to freedom, brothers. So in Christ, you no longer have to wonder about your status in God's eyes. You, you never have to fear that you won't measure up enough and you will lose your innocent standing. That won't happen. The pressure is off. The gospel has freed you from justification by works. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, just imagine how good that feels. Imagine what it would be like to not have the situation you have now, which is trying on your own in your own efforts to please the God of the universe and hoping you do good enough. Instead of having that, imagine having that status of innocent given to you at the front end where it's permanent. And it's not based on your own performance. It's based on Jesus. And all you have to do is come to Christ and trust in him fully that his work will pay for your sins. That is an amazing feeling. It's an amazing reality. And that's what's offered to you in the gospel. It's really all this church has to offer you that's of lasting value. So if you're interested in thinking about that more, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the other pastors here about what that looks like to trust alone in Christ alone, have all of your sins forgiven, being given this status of permanent innocence and righteousness in God's eyes. But for the Christians here, the, the gospel has given us this freedom from justification by work. So praise God for it. So, so now that we've got this freedom, what do we do with it? 
That's the question that Paul spends the rest of this passage answering for us. And the first thing he tells us is what not to do with this freedom. Second sentence of verse 13. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Okay, so we've got this freedom. We've been justified by Jesus's efforts. It's not dependent on our own. Paul tells us what not to do with that freedom. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, what's that mean, the flesh? He's not talking about our literal skin. That wouldn't make any sense. No, the New Testament authors oftentimes use this term, the flesh, to talk about our sinful nature as humans. That's what the term flesh means here. If, you, uh, if you're comfortable writing in your Bible, if, if you do that, you might want to write that. Sinful nature. That's what this word flesh is getting at, the human sinful nature. Look what Paul tells us about the flesh down in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. So what's the flesh do? It has these works, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay, that makes it pretty clear, right? Your flesh is your sinful nature. And that's the nature we were all born with, right? We, we all understand this, especially the Christians here. We know we were born with this sinful nature. Listen to the way David says it. Psalm 51, verse 5. David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not saying that there were particularly sinful circumstances uh, surrounding his birth. No, he, he's saying that every human is born in sin. We're all born with a sinful nature. And this is one monumental difference between the Christian worldview and most other worldviews. So most other worldviews, alternatives to Christianity, they either think human nature is good, which is a pretty wild thing to believe, especially here at the heels of two world wars in particular, or a worldview might say human nature is neutral. And then each person decides what to do with it, good or bad. But that's not what scripture teaches. Listen to the way we sum it up in our church's confession of faith. There we say, all men are sinners, being by nature separated from God, inclined to evil, and wholly lacking that holiness required by the divine law. So we're sinners. We have this sinful nature. It comes standard with humanity. But, but we need to pause and recognize something about our sinful flesh. And it's our second point this morning. Our sinful nature is always looking for opportunities to sin. Our sinful nature is always looking for opportunities to sin. Paul, Paul has to tell the Galatians to not use their freedom as an opportunity for their sinful nature because he knows the sinful nature is always looking for opportunities to sin. Look down at verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. So the flesh, your sinful nature has desires. It wants to do certain things. And what does it desire to do? We just read a list of those sinful desires, not an exhaustive list, but several things. Your sinful nature wants to sin. When, when we lived in Maine, we had, a, we had a well for our water, and there was a line that went between the well and our house. And at some point, there was a crack in that water line. And the way we noticed that was because our basement wall started to leak water. 
And the reason that is, is because there was a pool of water, who knows how long it had been there, that was sitting on the other side of that wall. And water, if there's a way to get through something, water, if you're a homeowner, you know this, water finds a way. Water finds a way to get through that thing. That's your sinful nature. Our sinful nature, it's it's like a pond of water leaning up against our life that all it's doing is looking for a way to come come out. All it's doing is like that water looking for a way to, to manifest itself. Our sinful nature is always looking for opportunities to sin. Now, the question for you is, do you treat it that way? Do you treat it that way? Do you remember that you have a sinful nature and, and so you need to keep a constant eye on it? Think about some, some particular examples. Are there times when, when you're about to put yourself in a situation where you know you'll be tempted to sin, but you think, oh, but I can handle it. I'll be fine. I've seen myself put myself in this situation before and I've sinned, but I think I'll be fine. I think I'll do okay. It won't be a problem. Do, do you ever confess sins to other believers but because you trust that you can, or don't confess your sins to other believers, because you trust that you can keep your sinful impulses under control? So you think, no, I, I can do this myself. I don't need to confess this weakness to others. Do, do you maybe try and coast several days between reading God's word or coast several weeks between gathering together with, with God's people? We don't want to do things like that. No, instead, we want to remember that, that our sinful nature is always looking for opportunities to sin, and, and we want to treat it that way with the kind of care that that requires. There was a pastor in England in the 17th century named John Owen, and he said it this way. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. What he's getting at there is the vigilance that's required for us to keep an eye on our sinful nature. We want to do that because our sinful nature is always looking for opportunities to sin. But, but the Lord, he never calls us to simply turn away from a bad thing. He, he always calls us to turn away from the bad thing in order to turn to the good thing, to turn to the better thing. All, all God's prohibitions are also provisions. He's providing for us in those commands. And, and that's what Paul does in the heart of our passage. Look at verse 13 again. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And this is the main idea of our passage. Use your freedom that you have in the gospel to serve one another. So as Christians, we have this freedom in the gospel, like we talked about earlier, the the freedom of knowing we're accepted by God and given a righteous status, not based on our performance, but based on Jesus completely, simply through trust in Christ. But Paul knows the temptation that the gospel will bring. He knows there'll be a temptation to think, well, wait, if my relationship with the Lord doesn't rely on my own performance, well, then that means I can do whatever I want, right? He understands that our sinful nature will take us there really, really quick. Now, if I'm made right based on Jesus's performance, then then I can live any way that I would like to live. But Paul's telling us that's not what our gospel freedom is for. In the middle of verse 13, he says the gospel is not an opportunity for the flesh. God didn't give you the freedom of the gospel so you could serve your own sinful nature. 
I think that NIV translates this helpfully. He, he didn't give you the freedom of the gospel so you could indulge your sinful nature. You weren't given that verdict of innocence so that you could freely get sinfully angry or lust or get jealous or gossip or get intoxicated or be lazy or love money. Okay, so why did he give us the freedom that comes with the gospel? If not to be able to do those things, why did he give us the freedom of the gospel? The Lord tells us again, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So church, we were given this freedom so that we could serve one another. Now, when Paul says one another, he's talking about how the Galatian Christians should care for their fellow believers. In particular, the believers that were there in their own local church, their local assembly, the Christians that they were around regularly. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians should turn away from serving non-believers. No, of course we, we should serve non-believers. But in this context, Paul's talking about the, the kind of service that should be exercised within the church. And the Lord's instruction is, through love, serve one another. Now, a few notes that Paul gives us about the kind of service he's talking about. First, it's costly service. It's costly service. So the Greek word translated serve, you might not know this, but the New Testament was written in Greek. So what we have are, are English translations of the Greek. Well, the Greek word translated as serve in the ESV in verse 13, it can also be translated be a slave to one another. In fact, it's the same Greek word that's translated as slavery back in verse 1 of chapter five. So the idea is it's, it's like as we serve one another, it's like we're putting ourselves in the employment of our fellow believers. We're, we're choosing to become their servant. Well, that's costly, isn't it? That's what the Lord is calling us to do. So, so the question is, is this the way you operate? Are you seeking to be a servant in a costly way of your fellow believers, of your fellow members of this church? A, a good test is to ask yourself the question, am I ever inconvenienced by my service to fellow Christians? So when you think about, yeah, I serve fellow believers. I do this and this and this and this. Well, ask yourself, go a step further, ask yourself, those things I do, were those inconveniences to me? Or were those pretty easy things to do, things that I was probably going to do anyway? That's a good question. If, if our service to one another is supposed to be costly, there should be times where we feel pinched. We feel the inconvenience of our service to fellow Christians. The service Paul is committing here is a costly service. And of course, we're simply following in the footsteps of our Savior, who gave us the most costly service imaginable. As Mark 10, 45 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So is your service your fellow believers, your service to one another, is it costly? But second, it's not just costly. It's also got to be motivated by love. It has to be motivated by love. In the middle of verse 13, Paul says, through love, serve one another. And we know there's, there's lots of different motivations for service. So employees serve their employer in large part because they're getting paid to do it. There's nothing wrong with that, but we can be honest about that. That's a motivation for service. Many times people will give volunteer service to impress others. 
It's a thing that oftentimes humans do. Members of an authoritarian government may serve out of fear of the dictator. But see, Christian service is motivated by love. Christian service is motivated by love. So, so is your service motivated by love? Or is it motivated by building up your reputation, maybe? Or motivated by guilt? Or some other kind of self-interest? The Lord tells us here, through love, serve one another. So, so costly and loving service to your fellow members in the body of Christ, that's one chief reason that you were given the freedom of the gospel. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So use your freedom to serve one another. Just to get practical, you could fill in the blank with all sorts of other examples here, but just to give a few. You were justified by faith alone in Christ alone, in part so that you could help out a fellow sister with her electric bill. That was part of the reason why you've been given the freedom of the gospel. You were justified by faith alone in Christ so that you could spend the time you were going to watch a movie or go on a walk or watch a game so that you could use that time to help out a fellow believer that maybe needs encouragement in the gospel. You were justified by faith alone so that you could clean the bathrooms at the church work morning. Examples like that are why we were saved, why we were given the freedom of the gospel. So again, we, we can think about it this way. Can, can you locate a situation in the past week where your sinful nature desired to go one direction, but for the purpose of serving a brother or sister in Christ, you went the other direction instead? You went against your sinful nature for the sake of loving a fellow believer. So you didn't want to carve out time for a fellow member, but, but out of love, you did it anyway. You, you felt the pinch of parting with that money, but you gave it to that sister in Christ anyway. You, you wanted to just watch a show instead of praying for your church family, but in love, you, you took the time to pray anyway. So that kind of thing should, should characterize you and me more and more as we move along in our Christian lives, we should more and more often use our freedom to serve one another. And here's the really interesting part about it. Paul says that becoming one another's servants is actually freedom. It's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? It seems like uh, uh, that it doesn't fit, but that's what he says here. He, he says that serving one another, that kind of servanthood, that kind of slavery is actually freedom. So in verse 13, it tells us we're called to freedom, but then instantly we're told to become slaves to one another, servants to one another. But, but this is exactly what the entire scripture teaches us. Serving yourself, serving myself, indulging our, our sinful nature, that's the real slavery. Isn't that wild? Our world thinks it's completely opposite. Our world thinks, you know what would be great? is if I got to the point where I didn't have to serve anybody really in any way except myself. That would be freedom, is what the world thinks. That's not what Jesus thinks. This is John 8, verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Serving our sinful flesh is slavery. The Lord tells us that's bondage. 
No, true freedom is dying to your sinful desires and giving yourself in love to other people. That's real freedom. So Paul's telling us, use your freedom to become a slave of your fellow believers. Verse 13 again, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Use your freedom to serve one another. Well, well, Paul closes out this passage with two reasons why we should use our love to serve one another. There's other reasons, but Paul majors on these two. First, love for one another is what God wants for us. Look how clear this is. Verse 14, Paul says, for the whole law, all God's commands, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So everything that God expects from us, as far as our relationships with other humans, it can all be boiled down to love people. That's the common denominator with all of God's commands. Love your neighbor as yourself, the way he says it here. Now, that's not the only place we hear about this, is it, in the Bible? Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 13, verse 8 and following. There he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul says in Romans 13. Listen to what James says in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, they're just echoing Jesus. It was our congregational reading this morning. Matthew 22, verse 36 and following. That guy comes up to Jesus, says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, now real quick, you probably noticed that Jesus says, actually the first great command is to love God. So did Paul just forget that part? Did James just forget that part? Are they saying something different than what Jesus is saying? Well, no. No, Paul's probably just focusing on mankind's duties towards one another, since the following section in Galatians is all about that. So it, it really fits in there. But, but I also think that part of what's happening here is that the command to love others, Paul knows, James knows, that really just flows straight out of the command to love God. So it's our love for God that fuels our love for other people. We, we can see that even in the Ten Commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments. You've got commandments five through ten that tell us how to love people. But what comes before those commandments? Well, one through four, and those are all about how to love God. You see, one flows from the other, even in Leviticus. So this passage, love your neighbor as yourself, we're going to read it in a second. That comes initially from Leviticus. It's the first place we see it in the Bible. Well, in the book of Leviticus, God spends the first several chapters talking about how his people should love him, where he sets up the sacrificial system in particular. And it's only after he kind of squares that away that he moves on to tell them how to love one another. 
So love for others really flows out of love for the Lord. I think this all makes sense of how Paul and James can call love for neighbor the main point of God's law. Why our passage can say the whole law is fulfilled in in this one word. And again, this one word, the main command for our interactions with others is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me read you the passage in God's law he's quoting from. JJ read it just a little while ago. Leviticus 19, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this is the end of a section that JJ read the the full section earlier, but there were several different commands given to govern the Israelites' relationships, interpersonal relationships with, with one another. But Paul picks up on the fact that after all those various commands, the Lord sums it all up by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what do all God's commands about human interactions have in common? The common denominator is love for neighbor. That's what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to love others. Now, now real quick, let's look at the way that we're supposed to love others. He gives a qualifier here. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so love the brothers and sisters around you in the way that you want to be loved. In, in other words, true love is giving someone the thing that is best for them. That's what we're aiming for. This person standing in front of me, what is best for them right now? That's the thing that I want to give them. Now, now that's not like a, a pushover kind of love, right? There's going to be times where, at least initially, the person doesn't think they need that thing. But you still give it to them because you love them. But, uh, the Lord talks about that in, in the passage in Leviticus where he says, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. He's talking about if you have to point out sin, one Israelite to another. Well, nobody likes that, right? But he says to do it because you know that's what's best for them. So this isn't a pushover kind of love. But that's the question that we're supposed to ask to determine all of our actions towards others. And in the case of this passage toward fellow believers, how can I best love the person standing in front of me right now? Every single command God gives governing our interactions with one another is getting at that question. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love for one another is what God wants for us. But the second reason Paul gives for why we should use our freedom to serve one another, it's our final point this morning, love for one another will help preserve our church. It'll help preserve Cornerstone Baptist Church. Verse 15, Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul had recognized that if the Galatian Christians, if they were gonna indulge their flesh, instead of serving their fellow church members. Well, as, as members are all pursuing their sinful desires, those desires will butt up against one another. That, that's the way it works. So if you want to be the most significant member of Cornerstone Baptist Church, and I wanna be the most significant member, well, those two desires are gonna butt up against one another. Those, those are mutually exclusive things. That's gonna lead to conflict. In fact, after Paul lists some of the bad fruit of the sinful flesh, Look at what he says down in verse 26 of chapter 5. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, 
envying one another. Now, we don't know that the Galatian Christians were involved in these sins against one another, but, but Paul knew it would at least be a temptation. Because when we indulge our sinful nature, when we use our freedom to get what's good for us, instead of serving one another, then we will sin against one another. Look again at how Paul characterizes fellow members sinning against one another. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another. Isn't that something? The imagery here, it's the imagery of animals fighting over something, eating it, destroying it, devouring it. In Maine, we had just sort of wilderness behind our house. And uh, one nice thing about that was if we ever had uh, food, so, so we had a big, uh, a big ham one Thanksgiving. And so there was some meat left on it, but then a lot of bones and fat and that sort of thing. So all we had to do was take that thing back up in the woods, I don't know, 15 feet past the tree line and sit it there. And then a week later, the thing was gone. Bones were gone the whole nine yards. There were enough animals back there. They devoured that thing. We had a lot of porcupines. I don't know if you know this, porcupines eat bones. Isn't that something? A lot of porcupines in Maine. So down here, we're driving on the road and we see a dead possum or a dead skunk. In Maine, just replace that with a porcupine. They were the ones that were walking around across the road and, and getting hit. So that food was devoured. It's this Im imagery of animals tearing each other apart. Well, what Paul is saying is that's what's happening when two church members are attacking one another with sin. Isn't that helpful? It's a good picture, isn't it? When, when you speak harshly to a fellow brother or sister in Christ, you're taking a bite out of them. That's what Paul is saying. When you sinfully exclude a fellow member, you're taking a bite out of him. When, when you judge a fellow member because they spend their money different than you would, or they parent different than you would, or they vote different than you would, when you level that kind of judgment, you're taking a bite out of your fellow church member. So the question for us is, are you devouring any of your fellow church members? Are you taking bites? Because see, like Paul points out, a local church can only sustain so many bites. Look at the end of Paul's warning, second half of verse 15. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That Greek word translated consumed, it could also be translated destroyed or killed. It's the same word used in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 about Jesus' return. They were told, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill. That's our word for devour. Will kill, destroy with the breath of his mouth. A church that is full of members who are regularly sinning against one another is a church that's on the verge of destruction, of being eaten out of existence. So with that in mind, pray that God would preserve Cornerstone Baptist Church, in part by us seeking to serve one another instead of sin against one another. So pray for that. And then just as practically, when you have sinned against a fellow brother or sister in Christ here, go to that person and confess that sin and ask for forgiveness, repent. To take the opportunity of the Lord's Supper Sundays to do that. So, you know, we'll send out that email in the week that kind of lets you know what's going on the following Lord's Day so you can prepare for that. Well, the email that gets sent out preparing for the Lord's Supper, you've probably noticed this, but there's four things there. 
just to kind of take inventory on, to be thinking about throughout the week. This is number four in that email. It gets sent out every month. Be sure that you are currently walking in fellowship with your fellow church members and aren't in need of repairing a relationship inside CBC before taking the Lord's Supper on Sunday. That's a good opportunity, isn't it? So take that opportunity every, every month at least to take stock of your relationships at this church and if you've sinned against a brother or sister. God didn't free you with the gospel so you could take bites out of fellow Christians. No, he freed you so you could love your fellow Christians. So to, to preserve our church and to honor the Lord who wants this for us, and to take proper advantage of the freedom we've been given in the gospel, use your freedom to serve one another. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. And Father, we're thankful for this word. We know that, that when we talk, we oftentimes waste words. We say the same thing too many times, or maybe we forget words. You never do that. Your word is exactly what we need. It's exactly balanced. It's perfect. Father, we know we need this passage of scripture. We pray, Father, that through the power of your spirit through us, that we would obey it, that we would seek to fulfill it. Father, that we would see that, that the reason we've been given freedom in Christ is to turn around and love one another. We pray, Father, that this church would be marked as a church that does that. Father, I thank you that as an outsider, I can come into this church for the past 11 months and testify to the fact that, that this church is characterized by that kind of love. We pray that it would only be so more and more and more. Father, work in us to take opportunities to offer this kind of costly love and service to one another, even when our, our sinful flesh is calling us the other direction. We need your spirit to, uh, to do that in us, but we pray that it would. Father, we're so thankful that we follow the one who never, ever took a bite out of us and never will. Father, the one who is perfectly faithful to serve us, and love us, and who did that on the cross. We pray that through the power of the gospel, we would fulfill these things for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.